0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Today on the pod, a Vancouver Police Commission report says more than $5 billion is being spent every year on the city's social safety net, despite worsening results. Vancouver Mayor Ken Sin joins us. Plus, Conservative Party leader Pierre Polyev joins us as we discuss the economy, housing, immigration, and China's ever-expanding covert operations in Canada. Plus, their greatest show on earth, we look at the U.S. midterm elections and the impact on Canada's economy and politics. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Yesterday, Mayor Ken Sim and the city's 10 councillors were sworn in at a ceremony at the Orpheum Theatre. Mayor and council were elected in October, as you know, and they'll serve a four-year term up to 2026. Mr. Sim is also the first Chinese-Canadian mayor in the 136-year history of our great city. Take a listen to the swearing in.
1: I will be accountable for the decisions that I make. And the actions that I take. And the actions that I take. In the course of my duties. In the course of my duties. I will be respectful of others. I will be respectful of others. I will demonstrate leadership and collaboration. I will just. Dis- sorry, say that again. I will demonstrate.
2: <laughs> <Sorry. laughs>
1: That's okay. All right. I will demonstrate leadership and collaboration. I will demonstrate leadership and collaboration. I will perform the duties of my office. I will perform the duties of my office. In accordance with the law. In accordance with the law.
0: That was, of course, a moment of levity, which I'm sure was a nerve wracking moment for Mr. Sim. British Columbia Provincial Court Judge Derek Ma administered the oath of office to uh, Mr. Sim and the 10 elected councillors. Joining us now is Ken Sim, Vancouver's new mayor. Your Worship, welcome. (laughs)
1: <laughs> hey, Jess, thank you very much. And I, I don't think I'm ever going to live that down, am I?
0: <laughs> hey, you know what? It, it's uh, totally understandable. It must have been a bit nerve wracking up, up there. I mean, did you get the sense of the, the historical moment or even the enormity of, of what you're about to take on?
1: Um, well, at the time, I was just trying to get through uh, reciting uh, what uh, the judge was saying. And, you know, as, an, uh, as a side note, uh, I noticed that park, council and school board, they actually all had um, um, that oath written out. I was the only person that didn't. So, um, <laughs> no, you know what? The enormity of the moment hit me a little while ago. It probably hit me two days after the election. Um, I I thought, yeah, even after... You know, we we gave the the victory speech, and it was quite emotional. I still felt that it was about, you know, um, running the city better. Um, And then when people kept coming up to me, and they shared with me their stories and their family stories, I realized that it it was bigger than, you know, being the mayor of Vancouver. Um, This is something where people in a whole bunch of different communities um, saw that a, a glass ceiling was broken.
0: Yeah, and absolutely. So it, well, it, it, It's humbling. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh, well, you were sworn in and news is already breaking. And uh, in many day, many ways, your first day is busy already dealing with us folks in the media. Uh, global News' is, uh, Ramina Dea was reporting uh, on yesterday's newscast that a confidential report commissioned by the Vancouver Police Department suggests more than $5 billion is being spent every year on the city's social safety net uh, with worsening results overall. Your thoughts, first of all, on that report?
1: Yeah, well, I think any report that sort of digs into things is great. It, it prompts a bunch of questions um, that are very helpful, um, and it, it does have some themes around transparency, accountability, and collaboration. So these are all good good things. Um, we have gone through the report, and um, what what we've seen is we have to do a lot more digging um, because a lot of the, the a lot of the numbers that um, were reported in that report weren't sourced, and so it's actually prompting more questions. Uh, right now. And so we're going to take our time um, over the next few days and weeks to really understand what's driving those numbers, the story behind the numbers, so we can have you know, uh, a more complete picture of what's going on.
0: Yeah, the overarching comment, certainly the sense that I got, was that you know, no one was responsible for overseeing sort of the broad uh, social services sector in a centralized manner, that be provincial, federal, municipal, uh, that many uh, service providers are all operating in their own little silos, and the, re- the results at its core uh, have been worsening, as I said. Can a mayor actually change that, first and foremost? I mean, it is a broad report, but at the at the end of the day, can a mayor uh, himself or herself actually change something like that?
1: Well, I, I think a mayor could be part of the solution and const- uh, prompt the conversations. And as mayor of Vancouver, look, we're we're um, we want to address the challenges that we have in the downtown east side and surrounding communities as part of a broader strategy for the whole region. And so we have to take a leadership role. And um, you know, in my inauguration um, speech, I did mentioned that we need a lot of help from the province and federal governments, and so we're going to leave the charge there, and we have to work together. And so if if that's the role of mayor, prompting that conversation, um, pushing in that direction and bringing other levels of government into the equation and the community, then, yeah, that, that, that would be our accountability.
0: Do you think, uh, you know, whether the report was leaked or not, but do you think that it should be coming from a police department? By even <laughs> by doing so, one would argue that that is a political uh, maneuver that they uh, are a part of, especially after the Vancouver Police Union endorsed you, that perhaps it shouldn't be coming from them, and that, it, that the very fact that it was Leaked is a act, uh, or at least a, a it's a political exercise more than anything.
1: Yeah. So what I can do as mayor of Vancouver is control what you know we have control of, and uh, there's a report out there. And regardless of where the report comes from, it looks like, you know, a lot of work was put into it and it prompts a lot of questions. And so now we're digging into it and we're going to find out what's, you know, what the complete picture is. And this, this reports, um, you know, it's prompted that conversation. So regardless if, uh, you know, the, Um, the vpd or you know any provincial or federal ministry or some private individual or nonprofit, came up with a report we would treat it the same way
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: you spent a lot of time during the campaign talking about hiring 100 more police officers 100 more (laughs) mental health nurses how long do you think it will it will take you and your council to hire those individuals uh, within your term
1: well, we feel really optimistic. So, um, really, that is an answer, um, or that's a question for the VPD um, because it's an operational, operational uh, decision. But we've already uh, started the the lake work. We've uh, we've spoken with the VPD in greater detail. We've sat down with the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority, and um, you know, we're we're very optimistic that um, we can have the bulk of these hires done, um, you know, sooner rather than later
0: i mean the budgeting itself can be there in the first year or two to get the vast majority of it done
1: yeah well you know it, we're going to be looking at the budget as well but uh needless to say there you know we're talking about a budget that's over 2 billion dollars um after you add the capital into it and so the size of uh, the size of this investment um when it's fully running is about $20 million. And I want to stress the size of the investment, not the cost, because for every dollar we put into this program, you would assume that you would get more than a dollar out in avoided other costs. And that's when it's fully running. When it's not, you know, when we're ramping up, um, you know, it's going to be a lot less, especially in the first year. Mm-hmm. And so we can we can phase into it.
0: Is the priority for you and your council right here now in the next four, four weeks or so, uh, six weeks or so, is the city budget because i think you probably have to you know get a sense of how how big it is the programs that you have where to where to cut potentially where to hold back where to spend more is the budget process now in the next i guess for the rest of this year the main issue for you
3: We're going to
1: run two or three things concurrently. So public safety is a primary concern of ours. And so we are doing exactly what we said we're going to do, which is we're going to start to hire up to 100 police officers and 100 nurses. And so we've started that process. Uh, The budgetary process that is starting uh, very quickly. We have our budget debriefs uh, actually scheduled for this week. So we're pretty excited about it. Um, and we're going to, you know, take a very methodical approach to that budget. And so we're not going to be rushed into any decisions that we, you know, if we don't have all the information we need, um, you know, we can push, uh, push these decisions off into the new year, um, and that would be prudent because at the end of the day, like I said, the budget's over $2 billion, and um, we owe it to uh, the taxpayers and the residents of Vancouver to make sure that we fully understand all the moving parts of that budget.
0: Uh, have you talked to Premier-elect David Eby yet? Yes, I have. And can you at least, uh, are you able to provide sort of broad, broadly what you talked about?
1: Uh, president, or President, pre- Premier-designate <laughs> Eby, uh, uh, you know, reached out and he was incredibly generous of spirit. We had a great conversation. We talked about, you know, uh, personal uh Personal issues and um, what we see as our goals uh, for the city and the province, and I can tell you a lot of our goals are aligned. You know, we 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 both agree that we do have a significant mental health, um, you know, addictions, homelessness uh, issue uh, in the downtown eastside and surrounding communities, and housing is uh, a challenge. And so we are aligned in terms of these are the goals that are these are um, big goals that we want to address and. I'm super optimistic about having an incredible relationship with um, with uh, Mr. Eby. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, final question to you, and it's a it's a big broad question, but uh, the the federal government announced that by 2025 they want to have uh, 500,000 immigrants come to Canada. 500,000. We used to debate 225,000 in the 1990s, <laughs> uh, and last year in British Columbia, 100,000 people moved here. Let's say at least half of those, or more than half, ended up in the Lower Mainland. A good chunk of them end up in the city of Vancouver, who already has a significant housing challenge. Do you think that number should be that high?
1: Well, what I can share with you is immigration uh, is needed uh, throughout our country. Um, you know, if, if we want to get deep into, you know, um, uh, staffing up um, our companies, our organizations, our hospitals, our police um uh, services, you know, technology companies. Uh, immigration uh, is and always will be a great thing. And then when you look at the demographics, the graying of um, of Canada, twenty five percent of people will be over the age of sixty five in Vancouver by twenty thirty. So immigration um, is part of the solution. And so what that uh, means is we really have to get serious about housing and build more housing faster. Um, or we're going to have a lot of challenges in Vancouver. Yeah,
0: Ken, thank you for your time, my friend. Look forward to having you on the show in the future.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for making
0: fun of me on your show. Uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Moment of levity, my friend, a moment of levity. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, John. Take care. Well, we spoke to uh, New Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim on this uh, confidential report that was commissioned by the Vancouver Police Department, which suggests more than $5 billion is being spent every year on the city's social "...safety net." Uh, and the general theme of that uh, report that basically says that no one is responsible for overseeing Vancouver's uh, social services sector in a uh, centralized manner. So many of the services, service providers operate in a sort of separate silos. Um, uh, the report uh, in its summary says that $5.1 billion was spent uh, in the social, with the social safety net in 2020, equating to about $7,200 per Vancouver resident or $14 million uh, per day. It says that those programs were administered by four separate City of Vancouver departments and six provincial ministries um, in, in regards to the city social safety net, and at all of them, of course, we're talking. To each other now. Uh, Mayor Sim did say that he would they would look into it, look at what's uh, right, what's what's actually real. Uh, But many have been skeptical also about the report. And I wanted to chat with a variety of people on this issue. Joining me now is Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councilor uh, here in the City of Vancouver. Uh, Councilor Fry, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Happy to be here. All right. So, first of all, your reaction to this report. I know we've only seen one news report on this so far from Dea. Uh, My understanding is the city of Vancouver will be holding a press conference tomorrow to elaborate a little bit more on this report. I don't know how much more information, new information they'll be providing. But your thoughts on all of this, first and foremost, of the $5 billion social safety net for the city of Vancouver.
4: Yeah. Now I'm I'm not aware that it's the City of Vancouver holding a press conference tomorrow. I think it might. No, be- it's
0: Vancouver Police Department, to my understanding.
4: Oh, Okay. So yeah. so that is that is separate. It's sort of separately governed. Yes. Uh, with its own police board, and they they in fact commissioned this report. So, um, like Mayor Sim, I'm assuming I haven't had the benefit of seeing this report at all. So, ironically, for a, a report that calls for more accountability and transparency, and I understand this is a few months old already. Uh, there's been no accountability and transparency in this report frankly 5.1 billion dollars for the city of vancouver's social safety is is incomprehensible uh, simply because we just don't work with that kind of a budget um, and I, I will note that I think the global report talked about this as a 2020 figure so i'm gonna i'm gonna hazard a guess that uh, with those kind of numbers they're probably including CERB payments from the federal government and, mm-hmm. and a, a number of provincial and federal inputs because we just don't have those kind of dollars that we play with at the city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. It did, so when report. we talked about $5.1 billion, i, I I'd be very, I, I did try and look for more information on, on these folks. And it, it is a, it is a, a service organization. It's a, it's, it's sorry, not an organization. It's a for-profit service that does data analytics uh, and encourages social service agencies to input information about, about their products. And in turn uh, governments and media and, and, analysts can subscribe to their service so there 's a lot to this that doesn 't quite pass the sNiff test as far as the accuracy of of how this is being framed
0: mm-hmm. and that 's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show they, they did say that it was this, the dollars that we 're talking about here are four separate city of Vancouver departments and six provincial ministries it, there could be b c housing involved in regard, it is, there are it is b c housing involved in regards to some of the housing societies. Do you think that just by even releasing this and i don 't you can call it a leak or whatever you want to call it? that it is political by the very fact that it was released.
4: Yeah. Again, you know, reflecting on the, on the, on the global story, I I note that it was the uh, official leader of the opposition that was interviewed on this. And I I don't know whether Mr. Falcon had had a chance to see this report yet himself. Um, But I, I thought it was interesting that, that, that he was able to comment on, on the substance of, of this report, that again, nobody on Vancouver city Council, as far as I'm aware, has seen this report Um. It does seem quite political. Yeah. On the, on the, on the, shortly after inaugurating a brand new uh, city council that was for the most part endorsed by the Vancouver police union and um, in the framing that sort of puts this in, in, in the light of downtown Eastside. And obviously we know that, that Ken Sim and the ABC have promised a lot more investment in, in policing. Um, and we have to recognize that with that increased investment in policing and the inevitability of, of, of cuts to the budget in order to pay for that, because I think uh, ABC and Ken have have also promised to to lower taxes, that we may be faced with some kind of scenario where they're looking to cut social services in the city of Vancouver. And, and I, I do believe that uh, I, I'm not a defund the police guy at all, but I, I do recognize that we need to do a lot of upstream interventions in order to prevent some of those those downstream impacts that we need to police. So when it comes to issues like poverty reduction and early childhood intervention and support for seniors and support for libraries and support for all those things that kind of actually mitigate otherwise what would be, um, you know, policing and, and, and criminal justice interactions, uh, I think that's where uh, the rubber hits the road when it comes to kind of these austerity measures that get proposed and. In, in what I'm feeling is coming from this report, again, based on what I've read, uh, just glancing through the Edmonton report that they had produced uh, a couple of years ago, talking about a $7.5 billion uh, social service audit mm-hmm. uh, in Edmonton.
0: Yeah, I'm just looking at the, it is, it is an, there is an 11 o'clock press conference tomorrow uh, specific to this report. Hopefully more information comes out. I'm just curious, but you know, I remember as a reporter in the 1990s, there's always that one number thrown out, a billion dollars spent in the downtown east side alone when it comes to the federal, provincial, municipal funding. Um, do, you, do you think at the end of the day, though, that there is that frustration from the public that we as taxpayers spend a lot of money And people don't have a problem spending that money, but that we aren't getting better at this. The amount of money we spend, yet we see more tents. whether there's issues of mental health and addiction, there are issues of public safety, ad nauseum. It goes on and on and on. And some of it, yes, can be exacerbated by COVID, so be it. But it just seems like we are not tackling this problem. We're not getting ahead of it. What do you say to that argument that, you know, it's 5 billion or 4 billion, people just generally feel the dollars that we have thrown at this problem, it's not well spent.
4: Yeah. You know, again, <clears throat> framing that, I, I don't think it's 5 billion. I don't think it's 4 billion. I think that those are grossly exaggerated numbers. But that said, I, I live I live in the downtown east side. Mm-hmm. I've lived in the neighborhood for 30 years. I'm equally frustrated. And, you know, I had a, a moment with uh, Chief Alton Palmer when we had a public safety forum uh, late in the last term. And, and, and we both agreed at that public forum uh, on the need for like a Vancouver agreement 2.0 kind of approach to the downtown east side, because there are a lot of concurrent initiatives and spendings going on. There's a lot of overlapping. There's a lot of siloing. There's a lot of stuff that could be better managed as far as the downtown east side. And oftentimes it does feel like we're, 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 we're not spending money in, in, in the best possible way for the best possible outcomes. Um, but that's going to take really thoughtful and engaged kind of work, not, not worked done by an Alberta-based for-profit corporation that that maybe doesn't have the boots on the ground. They may be taking a, a bird's eye view and looking at, at strictly numbers and, and trying to crunch it that way, or, or using data analytics or whatever it is that they're doing. But but this is complicated work, and we're dealing with you know vulnerable populations, trauma-informed situations, decrepit housing stock that is constantly being lost. You know, um, generational and systemic inequities that. That do become manifest, and you know one of the one of the things that we sometimes have a hard time rationalizing and, and understanding is that that those kind of traumas actually impact people's brain development from when they're children. So if you have generations going back with trauma, it actually it actually changes the way our brains develop when we're when we're infants, and that is that is a really critical distinction that we still haven't kind of overcome. So when we talk about you know like how much we're spending in the downtown East side, we need to recognize that we're we're catching up on generations of neglect and we're also you know we are we are the landing point for lots of the problems and and vulnerabilities uh and inequities from around the province and it ends up it ends up on our streets and I think that's you know a big part of this as yeah. well. It's not you know people. We're not making these problems as much as we are receiving a lot of these Vancouver the is always, sense.
0: yeah, it's overrepresented, and I don't disagree with you on that. Final question, i got about a minute here. Uh, Mayor Sim's key proposal during the election campaign was 100 new police officers, 100 new mental health nurses. Will that, even in the short term, have an impact on some of these things that you and I have talked about today, or do you have little faith in that actually accomplishing anything?
4: I mean, you know, if, if, if you could... Snap his fingers and make that happen. Then, then maybe it would. But the reality is, is that you know we don't have a hundred cops. We definitely don't have a hundred nurses, sort of at the beck and call. And and how are we going to pay for them? I don't disagree though that we do need some more thoughtful mental health interventions. We do need some more kind of health oriented interventions. Um, and we do need to restore sort of uh, order and public safety because you know the 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 public safety issues are real, and and you know the, the people who are often most impacted are by those kind of public safety issues, are the most vulnerable folks who are living in the downtown east side. And I don't deny that it's happening across our city and there's a lot of folks anti-Asian hate all the stuff that's happening. But spare a thought for the folks who are, who are super vulnerable and poor and maybe Asian, maybe Indigenous, maybe just poor, yeah. who are in the downtown side and constantly victimized that way.
0: Too. All right. Uh, Councillor Fry, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to having you on again. Really important issue. And we will chat about this again, I promise you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jess. Well, after announcing his 80-member shadow cabinet in October, Pierre Polyev has been busy putting together a team of senior political aides to prepare his party for the next federal election. In September, Mr. Polyev became the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, securing on the first ballot after receiving a record-setting 68% of the vote. Uh, Mr. Polyev has been touring B.C. the last four days. He joins us now. Mr. Polyev, thank you for your time today.
3: Good to be with
0: you. All right, well, lots to talk about. Let's focus a little bit on the economy. Earlier this week, Christia Freeland announced an economic update which assumes if a recession is avoided, the the federal deficit will be $36 billion, an improvement over the $52 billion deficit forecast by the government in April. Now, the forecast projects a $4.5 billion surplus by 2027-2028. Uh, program expenses are at $430 billion, and those will continue to rise year, uh, rise further each year over the next five years. Now, some would argue Canadians are still hurting post-COVID. Would you keep spending at this same le- level if you're elected prime minister?
3: No, the spending increases are unsustainable. Ms. Freeland added another $20 billion dollars of new inflationary spending measures in her most recent fall economic update that's on on top of a half a trillion dollars of inflationary deficits in the last two years alone the cost of government is driving up the cost of living uh, more borrowed and printed money bids up the goods we buy and the interest we pay the inflationary carbon tax is making things further worse by, by driving up the cost of our farmers to produce food our truckers to deliver goods to our grocery stores and uh, everything else so the more the liberals spend the more things cost it's just in inflation i would cap government spending with a new law a dollar for dollar law that requires government find a dollar in savings for every new dollar of spending i'd also um, eliminate the carbon tax to um, lower the cost of food gas and home heating um, and I would, uh, move, uh, I would remove the government red tape so that our farmers and businesses can produce more affordable food, homes, and energy uh, for Canadians.
0: Why do you want to repeal the carbon tax? Some would argue, uh, as a free enterprise party, that putting a price on carbon, particularly in the interest of dealing with climate change, is the right thing to do. Why do you wish to repeal the carbon tax?
3: But what we've seen is it hasn't worked. Um, the tax has been in place now uh, since 2016, and, and the Liberal government has failed to meet a single solitary climate uh, target since that time. Uh, emissions continue to go up. And what we need instead is to um, encourage technological transformations by making alternatives more affordable rather than making traditional energy more expensive. Um, we, um, that's what I will do. I'll encourage uh, nuclear power to replace coal, fire, and electricity. I'll, um, incentivize carbon capture and storage so we can bury the carbon back in the ground where it came from. I'll also encourage the export of clean Canadian energy to places like China and India so that they can shut down their foreign coal fire. Uh, and these are the kinds of practical things that will actually reduce emissions while Uh, making it possible for Canadians to pay their bills.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Let's talk a little bit about housing. I've just had the the mayor of Vancouver on the show uh, in the last hour. It's an incredibly complex issue. No one government can fix the problem. All three levels of government have to work together on this. But I can say uh, under the leadership of uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, average house prices in this region have probably gone up on average about half a million dollars. What would your government do to reverse that trend?
3: Well, um, let's acknowledge the the source of the problem. Um, The federal government printed half a trillion dollars, and a lot of that money flooded into our financial and mortgage system, allowing investors to bid up the cost of housing. And meanwhile, local level gatekeepers prevented housing construction um, with incredible delays and high costs to get building permits. Vancouver is probably the worst uh, for this. Um, the cost of government baked into the average Vancouver home is $650,000. That's permitting delays, development charges, taxes, uh, and consulting fees, et cetera. That is insane. That's why Vancouver is the third most overpriced housing market on planet Earth, worse than New York, Los Angeles, uh, London, England, Singapore, etc. So here's the solution. A poly of government will require large overpriced cities to issue faster building permits at lower prices if they want to get federal infrastructure money. In fact, I will link the number of infrastructure dollars that big cities get to the number of houses that get completed so that we can incentivize cities like Vancouver to remove these gatekeepers, speed up construction. I'm going to sell off 15 percent of the the underutilized 37,000 federal buildings so that those buildings can be converted into housing. In other words, stop printing money, start building houses.
0: But the challenge of housing has been there prior to the challenges of COVID, Uh, Mr. Polyev. I mean, I understand what you're saying in regards to some of the money that's been out in the the economy during COVID and what's been printed. But a lot of these problems uh, are structural and have been there way before COVID uh, even arrived. What makes you think the federal government has that power over municipalities to make the real changes that are required?
3: well it is true that municipalities and provinces are responsible for most of the housing permitting but the federal government does provide a lot of housing dollars and infrastructure money and if we attach conditions to that to those dollars that require city big cities to get things built then it will i think that it will light a fire under the bureaucrats and politicians one thing mayors and city councillors understand is money. They always want more federal money. Well, my answer to them is going to be, get out of the way, let builders build. If you want federal money, you have to get houses completed because it is ridiculous that we have the second worst housing bubble on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. House prices have doubled under Justin Trudeau. This was not a problem seven years ago. Not, not at all, not even close. They've doubled under Justin Trudeau because all he's done is pump more money into the system What we should have done is push for faster construction, And we need to crack down on, frankly, these big city gatekeepers who are preventing Canadians from owning homes.
0: Uh, Mr. Paul, uh, yesterday, uh, Global News reported a report that was leaked, uh, basically commissioned by the Vancouver Police Department, that showed this $5 billion uh, in in spending by um, four levels of City Hall in Vancouver and the six uh, government ministries, the provincial government ministries. Basically, we spent $5 billion between all those entities, in the city of Vancouver, not even Metro Vancouver, in the city of Vancouver, that comes out to just under 14 million dollars a day, and yet we still have mental health and addiction issues. We have public safety issues. How can the federal government help, particularly around public safety and mental health addiction? Because this report just came out yesterday. More is going to come out tomorrow. The mayor was on my show just an hour ago on this issue. But if those numbers are correct, and this is, this is a report commissioned by the VPD, five billion with a B dollars spent. A year, fourteen million dollars a day, and we still have huge issues in the city.
3: Yes. Yeah, so, the approach of the Liberals and NDP has been a disaster. Um, the uh, Trudeau government has uh, made it, uh, flooded our streets with the illegal drug, what were illegal drugs by now legalizing them, um, and is tax using taxpayers' money to supply dangerous. Narcotics onto the streets. They told us this would make things safe, that would reduce overdoses. It did exactly the opposite. In fact, overdoses in BC are up 300%. BC Health said yesterday uh, that the province is on track to have 2,000 overdoses. That's four times what it was when Trudeau took office. Um, And that's just for one year. So, then, then he, what he's done is, is he made it easy for repeat violent offenders to get easy bail so they go back out on the street and reoffend over and over again. This is Trudeau's policy. Uh, my answer is to do the opposite. One, I would redirect the money away from taxpayer subsidized narcotics towards treatment and recovery. We should provide addicts with beds, counseling, detox, and help them get off their addiction. That's what they're doing in Alberta right now, and that has reduced overdoses by fifty percent in just one year. Secondly, the vast majority of crime is being committed by a very small group of reoffenders. Uh, I, I saw a letter from BC Mayor showing that in Vancouver, something like six hundred, sorry, six thousand arrests, uh, were for forty people. Forty people just reoffending over and over and over again. Those worst, the prolific repeat offenders, need to be kept in jail. And finally, we need to bolster our borders to keep the illegal, dangerous drugs and guns out of our country. That's the three step approach I would take.
0: For just joining us, uh, we are speaking to Pierre Polyev, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. He is uh, touring British Columbia. He's been here for four days. I think a couple more days before Mr. Polyev heads back to Ottawa. Lots to talk about, uh, Mr. Polyev. Let's focus a little bit about immigration. This is a city built uh, by immigrants as are many of our communities across the country um, recently the liberal government said they would increase immigration levels to 500,000 uh, immigrants a year that of course doesn't include international students but 500,000 in many ways and that was by 2025 in many ways that's a, a symbolic number in that we've never had immigration levels at such uh, at such a, a such a number i recall early in the early 90s we were debating numbers around 220 240,000 um, the people emigrating to Canada every single year. In the context of housing, in the context of transit needs in our major cities, uh, do you support immigration levels at $500,000, 500,000 people a year?
3: Look, I don't think that numerical targets uh, are the answer because from year to year, it's going to go up and down. Uh, so when you have um, very low unemployment and high demand for new workers, you're going to have higher levels of em- economic immigration. In higher, When in unemployment goes up, you're obviously going to have fewer employers sponsoring newcomers to work for them. Um, the same goes for family reunification and refugees. If you have fewer the, uh, uh, charities sponsoring refugees, you'll have fewer in a given year, but another year you might have more because there's more capacity to sponsor them. So uh, what I would rather do is have the, a demand-driven system where in times when the job market is booming, employers are able to quickly sponsor immigrants to come and work in otherwise unfilled jobs. Uh, We need to speed up economic immigration dramatically. I was in Surrey yesterday at a restaurant that is built, furnished, decorated, beautiful chandeliers everywhere, and guess what? Hmm. Not in operation for four years. Why? Because they can't get cooks. And they need cooks from India. They had those cooks. They could then hire local people to to be the waiters, waitresses, receptionists, etc. But the, the the Trudeau immigration system is so slow and slow lumbering that they can't get those cooks into the country. Meanwhile, there's there's 2.6 million immigration applications in the backlog. So when I see all of these big, um, uh, lofty promises from the liberals about 500,000 immigration applications that are going to process. I'll see it to believe it. They have been so incompetent, and there are so many employers who can't get workers, so many families separated from loved ones, so many, so many, uh, also, so many um, um, refugees languishing in, in camps because of this poor and irresponsible government failing to process the job.
0: Final question, to you. We got about a minute left here. Uh, we spent a lot of time. We spent a lot of time on this show talking about China. Yesterday, we uh, talked to Sam Cooper from Global News, uh, where we learned that China was allegedly targeting Canada with a vast campaign of foreign interference, which included funding cl- clandestine networks uh, of, of at least eleven federal, federal candidates running in the twenty nineteen election. There has been much talk about economic espionage. We've talked about three uh, uh, Chinese companies told to disinvest from three Canadian mining. Uh, operations in this country. We've often talked about uh, Australia having a collective spine and pushing back on China and espionage. And it's a smaller country than Canada. Um, Do you think we need to do a lot more in regards to changing our relationship with China? And specifically, if you're prime minister of this country, what would you do in regards to our relationship with China?
3: Well, first and foremost, we should get to the bottom of this. This report is uh, really eye-opening. If, in fact, a foreign government is sponsoring uh, election candidates, that's illegal. Um, Foreign governments are not allowed to donate money to election campaigns in Canada. Um, And that that should be investigated by the elections commissioner. Um, Second, uh, I think uh, we need to know what Justin Trudeau has done. He, He apparently got briefed on this. Um, months ago, and I'm not aware of any action he has taken to counter this apparent interference. Um, But uh, third, I think we need to become a more independent country. Look, a lot more people are driving electric cars. That's great. But the batteries are coming from lithium that is mined or refined in China. We're becoming more dependent on the Chinese economy for rare minerals that we have right here in Canada, we should be expediting mining and manufacturing projects that allow us to become independent from China in the production of the minerals and the products that we're going to need in the future. We need to protect our IP against espionage, and we need to prevent state actors from buying up our critical minerals, because that will leave us helpless in the future economy. So uh, we need a country that stands on its own two feet, brings home production, and and uh, protects itself against foreign political interference in our democratic process.
0: Mr. you've always a uh, pleasure chatting with you. Look forward to having you on the show and in studio one day as well, hopefully very soon. Thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it, and I'd love to come see you in the studio.
0: I'm sure in the past couple of months or so, you've been hearing a lot about U.S. midterm elections. While they're occurring today, these elections are for Congress, which is made up of two parts, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Now, these votes are held every two years, and they fall in the middle of the president's four-year term of office. That's why they're called midterms. Now, the Democratic Party has held a majority in both the House and the Senate for the past two years. That's been helpful for President Joe Biden to pass the laws he's wanted. But the Democrats hold that power over the Republicans by uh, very narrow margins, which makes for a tight contest. Now, polling suggests the Republicans might take the House, but the Democrats could hold on to the Senate. The repercussions of tonight's vote are huge, not only for American taxpayers, but for Canadians and our economy, even our politics to a certain degree. Joining me now to discuss the vote tonight is Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. Reggie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Give me a sense of what this day has been like so far uh, in regards to turnout and the conversations you've been hearing.
5: I mean, look, even before today, uh, turnout was huge for this midterm. There were more than 41 million Americans who cast an early ballot. That broke a record that is record-breaking for any kind of midterm, and it goes to show just where the kind of U.S. political landscape has found itself in the years following uh, 2020's election, in the months and year that's followed uh, the riot at the Capitol on January 6th, and in the months that followed what the Supreme Court did with the overturning of Roe. There is interest in this. Midterm uh, election, there's also a little bit of fear. There's a lo- also a little bit of unknown solely because the polls have been all over the place for the last few years. It's been really hard to kind of gauge voter interest. And because of that, you know, are we looking at a big Republican takeover of Congress? Are we looking at a potential, uh you know, stave off by Democrats? There's a lot that's unknown and it's leading to a lot of fear and within the White House, a lot of concern for what it could mean for Joe Biden's ability to legislate.
0: Uh- Are we expecting all results to tonight, or could this drag on for days and weeks?
5: This is going to drag on. This is going to likely be a kind of repeat to what we saw in 2020. There are certain states, like in Pennsylvania, that aren't allowed to count uh, early or absentee uh, ballots until Election Day. Uh, And there can be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of absentee ballots. And that slows down the process, meaning that it creates a sort of mirage. It's what we saw in 2020, where Republicans have a lead. And then as those absentee ballots are counted, then all of a sudden that lead starts to erode and it could potentially you know, catapult uh, the Democrats into uh, a potential lead of their own. So this is something that is going to take time depending on what the state is. And in somewhere like Georgia, if neither Senate candidate gets 50%, we run the risk of a runoff. So that kind of uh, uh, determination might not be known until the end of December. So this is something that's likely going to spark those concerns, especially amongst some in the Republican Party of election fraud, because this is going to be a changing result by the day.
0: Is the economy uh, and talks of inflation still the number one driving issue?
5: Uh, On both parties, uh, absolutely, it is. Polling has showed that for the last several months, uh, the economy has been the number one topic, and Republicans have really seized on that. That has been their message to say, look, under the Biden administration, the policies that he's put forward with Democrats have uh, resulted in Americans paying more for energy. It's resulted uh, in the Federal Reserve uh, uh, hiking rates, and it's resulted in higher gas prices. Now, that you know, ignores the underlying cause here in that some of this can be tied back to Russia's war on Ukraine. But when you're in a campaign mode, uh, you know, you're you're talking about the things that impact people most. Democrats really struggled with that. They really tried to make this about uh, the, the kind of stripping of rights towards Americans, including Roe v. Wade. It's not a big enough discussion, though, for the broad number of Americans. Uh, and so they had to kind of change their messaging over the last few weeks. We'll have to see if it worked out uh, or if some of that, you know, 41 million record-breaking early voting is going to do something to benefit Democrats.
0: How much of tonight will influence President Joe Biden's term?
5: Well, I mean... If Republicans uh, get some kind of majority in the House, that's going to effectively stop legislating, uh, stop the, the legislative process from moving forward, because Joe Biden will have a difficult time getting something out of the House and through to the Senate. But Republicans have already come out. Kevin McCarthy, who is likely expected to become the House Speaker, has already said legislating will be second, investigating is going to be first. They're going to use the powers of the Oversight Committee to look into things like The handling of COVID under the Biden administration, things revolving around Dr. Anthony Fauci, potentially impeaching Joe Biden for whatever they believe high crimes and misdemeanors to be, uh, or or looking into the chaotic withdrawal uh, of of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. These are grievances that have come from the Republican Party for months, if not years. And if they have the power, they are going to investigate that. That is uh, effectively going to logjam the president from being able to do anything, not just in the near future, but for the next two years.
0: Uh, You know, when I'm watching from Canada some of these um, campaign rallies, uh, Donald Trump still seems to be playing such a significant role in regards to getting out, uh, making speeches, riling up the base. What role has he been playing?
5: Well, I mean, look, a a significant number of of Republicans that are running in these races were handpicked by Donald Trump himself, or they were endorsed by Donald Trump. And that endorsement can carry a significant weight with it because it will push uh, you know, a broad part of of the Republican base towards that person. There's also a lot of election deniers that are on the ballot. That's following the playbook that Donald Trump started back in 2000. And I think what we need to do is watch to see what results come in over the next couple of days. If this becomes a big Republican win, especially for those candidates that Donald Trump chose, this could potentially influence him to to uh, you know go further with his political ambitions you know we 're expecting some kind of announcement from Trump in the next couple of days, you know likely announcing that he intends to run for two thousand twenty four and with a big Republican turnout. With the kind of influence that he's had, that could be enough to potentially solidify the base underneath him and strip it away from anybody else who tries to go after Trump for their own candidacy.
0: Are the Democrats actually using that as part of uh, their overall campaign message uh, uh, for today, which is, look, if, if uh, somehow the Republicans get in, you're basically looking at a Trump 2024 campaign and to actually stop that campaign is actually winning the midterms today and now.
5: Yeah, I mean, look, Democrats understand that it's an uphill climb for them, especially when it comes to uh, their ability to keep control of the House. Even President Biden, when he returned home from a rally in Maryland on Monday, he made comments that he thinks they'll win the Senate, but the House uh, is likely going to be a lost cause and Republicans are going to take that. And I think... There are some Democrats who say, look, if Republicans win, they're going to spend two years not dealing with uh, issues that are of uh, American importance to the public. They're going to be dealing with things that the party itself sees as you know, having been problematic for themselves and not for the kind of, quote unquote, greater good here. And I think Democrats will say, look, if Republicans, quote unquote, burn the House down over the next two years, this gives us a chance to redirect our focus to the base and, and put you know more policy driven ideas on the table. And get the vote out for 2024. I think a secondary problem for Democrats, uh, you know, even beyond their loss to potential loss uh, on Tuesday, is going to be Joe Biden's unfavorable numbers. They are still low. They are, you know, in and around where Donald Trump's were at this point. Does that mean that there's just less of a of a want for Joe Biden to be the candidate in 2024? There's a lot that is going to be kind of looked at and discussed and ripped apart based on what happens tonight.
0: What should British Columbians and Canadians uh, view, and what should our view be, whether it's a Republican win or a Democratic win, what's it mean for trade, for our relationship uh, with America?
5: Well, I mean, look, in a general election, when there's a president on the ballot, uh, you know, the agenda, the policy, the legislation that comes forward can have an impact across the border and around the globe. In a midterm election where the president's staying the same, but it's simply the lawmakers that are changing out, oftentimes the impact isn't felt as far, uh, you know, as, as either Canada or, or Mexico or beyond. That said, there could be some potential policies here that are put in place that are a little bit more protectionist that could have an impact on the way that the Canada-US relationship works. I think a bigger concern here is the kind of rhetoric and vitriol that has kind of been put forth by the Republican Party. There's a fear of that bleeding across the border and starting to have an influence in more extreme policymakers and lawmakers in both Canada and abroad. And I think that could be the biggest concern here. If it's normalized in the U.S., does that now make it normalized in countries around the world?
0: Well, it's going to be a fascinating uh, race, and I know a lot of Canadians will be watching very closely. Reggie, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Well, this next group that we're about to speak to is a group that I first ran into in 2008. I was uh, based uh, in India at the time, in New Delhi as a South Asia Bureau Chief for Global News and uh, it's a group called Democrats Abroad and it was 2008 and uh, we were covering the US election from India actually, uh, which was I found interesting because there's so many Americans obviously that live around the world and it was President Obama's uh, first election that he ran in of course and he won. It was a fascinating uh, piece of history for me to be there in early morning in New Delhi to watch the results come in, but is watching uh, Americans uh, making phone calls from their homes uh, for their respective candidates in their various uh, states and counties and how engaged they were. In fact, there are 9 million Americans living outside the United States, and they're watching uh, the midterm elections very closely, and many of them, of course, live here in Canada, including our next guest, Aaron Kotecki-Vest, is the Canada Chair for Democrats Abroad. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today
2: so much for having me.
0: So, what what goes through your mind right now watching the results coming in, uh, you know, living abroad uh, but being engaged? What what what's going through your mind right now?
2: Honestly, it's a little bizarre to watch from afar. i mm-hmm. um, I've mm-hmm. only lived in Canada for a few years now. So this is my first big election not living at home. Well, still call it home even though <laughs> Canada is home now. And it's um I have to say I'm happy to have Canadian broadcasters covering the election because the coverage is much better. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the hardest thing I think is feeling as though I can't help nearly as much as I want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's still I'm still a citizen of the United States. Go on there still affect me in many different ways. I, I collect um, social security, so therefore my social security is is part of this you know you, just because you move doesn 't mean that uh, you let go of those ties or that you aren 't part of the system anymore mm-hmm. and we 've found that with over five hundred thousand Americans.
0: There's much to be said about American democracy and 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 mm-hmm. how it's evolved. Uh, where do you sit in regards to the health of your democracy, based on what you've been watching for this midterm election and what you've been watching over the last couple of years?
2: Where do I sit? It's it's scary to be quite honest with you. I feel like it's it's teetering, and when we watched the Trump administration and what happened on. Uh, January sixth after the Trump administration, you get very nervous to think that, wow, are we really just one transfer of power away from civil war? I mean, I know that's extreme but it's very nerve wracking. I don't I've never felt this way about politics at home or an election. Mm-hmm. I have found that uh, other Americans who usually aren't very political are talking about it, um, are trying to do something about it, because we're all nervous. Whether we're on the right or the left, we just want to preserve democracy. Um, and that—that that is kind of one of the key things, I think, that you look at as an American, like, wait a minute, we're supposed to be the ones helping others, and we can't even, even keep ourselves together right now. <laughs> so it's really, it's rather frightening. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. So
0: are you encouraging people to uh, make phone calls for, uh, prior to, to tonight? Were you encouraging people to make phone calls for the respective candidates in their, in, in their uh, respective states?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, basically, what we've done is everything we could possibly do, as a we're considered a state party to be honest with you we're part of the dnc Mm -hmm. and uh, with the and with all of the the rights and the privileges and the craziness that that goes on with being part of the dnc Mm -hmm. so if we were a state party we'd be the 13th largest state
3: with all u.s
2: citizens living abroad that's a lot right so we do the same things any state party would do we do phone banking. We do postcard mailing. We do, you know, door knocks if we can, but COVID has made that a little bit difficult. (laughs) We do registration table, and I don't know if you noticed in Vancouver, we've done uh, digital billboards and uh, tons of social media ads. Oh, my goodness, the social media ads that we put all over the place. So that way you can find us. If you're trying to figure out how to vote from abroad, if you are a an American living in Canada, living in Vancouver, hopefully you've come across us by now and you know exactly who we are and how to get your ballot.
0: Aaron, we've run out of time. I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much uh, and uh, all the best to you tonight. I know you'll be watching very closely.